1: Max Pex
0: Thank you. Um, you you guys can hear me, right? Yes. You can't even hear me in the back. We don't need this. Do All right. Oh, you're gonna put. It on? Okay, so we're we're recording this for posterity. All right. Uh, which which makes it even weirder because uh, I've just started doing this book tour and I've never sort of done a book tour for a graphic novel, so I'm not really sure what to do. Because you know, usually with a book. That's prose, you know, you get up and you say, hello, I'm Amy Tan, and, you know, this is my new book, why I don't drive a Japanese car, Uh, but I'm, and then you read from it. And I'm not really sure what to do with a graphic novel. Like, what do I I just, wow, look, (laughs) racism, so I think the best thing to do is just to sort of talk about it for a little bit, and then field whatever questions you all have, and and then we can, we can do our signing. So I'll tell you the story of the Harlem Hellfighters, and and then if you're interested, my my story being involved with them. Uh, in 1917, the United States government set up a group of its own soldiers to fail, which is ironic because the United States entered its first war of choice. And what I mean by war of choice is, up until that point, this sort of new nation, if you could even call it that, had always fought for a concrete reason. The reason was uh, independence from Britain or to preserve the Union or we really liked California and wanted to take away from Mexico. Uh, But for whatever reason, we had fought for something tangible and material and this was the first time we were going off to war f- for reasons we didn't really understand. Why? What, what, what could Europe possibly have that we didn't have here? And that, that didn't make any sense. So Woodrow Wilson, the president, made it about something higher. He said, we are going off to make the world safe for democracy. And that was very interesting. It's the first time we left for a higher calling, which was ironic because that was not lost on the people who didn't have democracy at home. While we were going off to make the world safe for democracy, we were actually denying democracy to some of our own soldiers. This unit of New York National Guardsmen, because they looked like this, uh, were set up to fail by their own government. They were given uh, inadequate uniforms. They were given uh, poor training. They were not even given rifles initially because the U.S. government was giving away, I'm not kidding, giving away rifles to private shooting clubs so civilians could practice their marksmanship in case they got called up for the draft. And so therefore, those guns were not given to their own soldiers. And so these guys actually had to pretend to be phony rifle clubs and write to the U.S. government and essentially steal their own guns. Then they were sent to train in Spartanburg, South Carolina, that hotbed of racial tolerance, (laughs) hoping that there would be a race riot. Now, there's no proof of this, but two weeks before, there had been a horrible race riot in Houston where black soldiers had actually shot up the town. And obviously, that unit of soldiers was disgraced. They didn't get a chance to fight in the Great War. So why would you send another unit of black soldiers into the even deeper South, specifically when the mayor of that town wrote to the New York Times and said, do not send them. If you send them, there's gonna be trouble. So they sent them anyway. Now, I don't know if you guys know the Jackie Robinson story, if you saw 42, and the whole point of 42, the whole point of the Jackie Robinson story was he had the courage not to fight back which is pretty amazing. But now imagine a whole unit of several hundred young men who weren't allowed to fight back, even as they were being trained to fight. And we're not talking about, in 42, Alan Tudyk standing in the stands yelling names. We're talking about these guys being beaten on the streets of Spartanburg, South Carolina, and couldn't fight back. So they had that kind of discipline. And there was no riot. And they were finally sent overseas to dig ditches. That's what they had been planned for, that's what the government wanted for them, was to improve the infrastructure for the white troops. And when they finally complained and demanded to be sent in combat, they were given to the French as a throwaway. And this is particularly insulting because when we entered the war, the British and the French were ecstatic because they thought we were going to just provide their armies with replacements and general pershing the supreme commander of the allied army said uh, the american army said absolutely not these troops are going to fight under an american flag under an american command as an american army except for the black guys you can have them <laughs> so that's what he did he gave them to the french now the french had had a lot of great luck with their african troops They had just used their African colonial troops, the Moroccan Senegalese, threw them into combat, and the Africans were uh, so devastating on the battlefield that the French, probably in their reverse racism, thought, well, wow, maybe all black people can fight this well, so how lucky are we? (laughs) But also, the French had been bled white by four years of war. They didn't have the luxury of their prejudices anymore. And you see that in war. That's one of the most interesting things about war is sometimes cultural norms have to be thrown away. Uh, when you really get desperate. You see that in World War II with the United States, where, oh my God, women have to be the major workforce because all the young men have gone away. We can't be sexist anymore. We can be in the 50s, but not now. (laughs) That guy got it. So the French were just grateful, and the French put them straight into combat, and they spent more time on the front lines than any other American unit. 191 days. They never lost a trench. They never lost a man to capture. And the first man, the first American, black or white, to win the French Croix de Guerre was Henry Johnson, one of these guys. The whole unit ended up winning the Croix de Guerre during the Kaiser's advance to take Paris. There was nothing in between his army and the French capital, but these soldiers. The unit actually started to do so well that the American government actually started to impose Jim Crow overseas. The American government was so afraid of the name that these soldiers were making that they wrote out a doctrine to give to the French that basically said, don't praise them extensively. Don't shake hands with them. Don't visit with them. Especially don't praise them in the company of, of you know white officers and white men. Uh, and do we have to tell you not to keep them away from white women? So there was all these things to keep them in their place, so to speak. Uh, because what they were afraid of is exactly what was happening. This was a time, I should back up, this is the time called the Great Migration. This was when lots and lots of black people were moving from the South into northern cities to be part of the war industries. And this is when northern white America was losing it out of terror because it's okay to free the slaves in the South as long as they stayed in the South. So the last thing that the status quo wanted was this group of heroes marching home, proving what was capable. And this is very important. It's one thing for a human being or a group of human beings to have confidence, but that confidence doesn't stick unless you have physical, tangible proof. I mean, I can say that as a Jew, like half our holidays are all spent telling ourselves how awesome we were, (laughs) so we can now face the future. (laughs) And that's important for every culture, to tell yourself, wow, we can do it. Why do we know we can do it? Because we have done it. And that's why the government tried so hard to stop these men from coming home as heroes. In fact, when they marched off to war, they were denied the most basic honor of any soldier, which is a parade marching off to war. And that's, that's basic. When you're a soldier and you go off to fight, you know that your government and your people are behind you. And that's why you have a parade. That's why you march and triumph down Main Street towards the ships that are going to take you somewhere. And the band plays and the crowds cheer and the ticker tape comes down. And you know that you might be the tip of the spear, but the whole shaft is right behind you. Well, instead of being the shaft, they got the shaft. Because all the New York National Guard units were put together as what's called the Rainbow Division. And they marched off in triumph, except for the black guys because they were told, and I'm not kidding, black is not a color of the rainbow. So they were even denied that. But after the war, and oh, by the way, after doing a little something called introducing jazz to Europe because their regimental band brought over the greatest jazz band the world has ever seen, after all this, they did come home in triumph. They marched up Fifth Avenue and over a million New Yorkers turned out of all color to welcome them home. So in spite of everything, they got their parade and they provided proof of what human beings of any skin color can do. That's the story of the Harlem Hellfighters and that's why I wrote this. Now, on a much more boring note, my personal story about writing this was uh, many, many years ago in a time called the 1990s. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if you you guys remember, uh, TNT had done the Buffalo Soldiers with Danny Glover and I thought TNT had done the Tuskegee Airmen, the original one, and then Spike Lee corrected me (laughs) and said it was actually HBO. Sorry, HBO. Uh, But I thought now was the perfect time. And I said to my girlfriend, who's sitting there is now my wife, I said, I'm going to write about the Harlem Hellfighters. And I I ordered a book from this brand new website called Amazon. And Amazon was so new they actually have little Amazon post-its that they would send out as promotions. Like, hooray, books from the internet. Um, And I started doing my research and I wrote it as a script. And I pitched around to Hollywood. And Hollywood said, absolutely not, Uh, no. You're not, because the first thing Hollywood does when you give them a script, it's like the Borg, you know, you go to the giant cube and you give them your script and the first thing they say is, what's this going to cost? And they're thinking, oh, a period piece? Well, that means that all the props, costumes, settings all have to be custom made. That's going to cost. And, oh, it's a war movie, so you're going to need lots and lots of extras. That's going to cost. And... It's starring black people? (laughs) Yeah, thanks, but no thanks. So uh, I was ready to give up on this uh, because when you're a young writer, you blame yourself. You think, well, this must be my fault. I must just be a sucky writer. And I had one last meeting and it was with LeVar Burton and Labar Burton said, uh, I would love to direct this. I don't have the power, but I'm not gonna give up on it and you shouldn't either. And then he said something that was really important to me. He said, there are more than a couple Harlem Hellfighter scripts making the rounds right now, uh, but yours comes closest to the truth. Now, when you're dyslexic and you've had a real problem in school and Jordy LaForge tells you you've done your homework, that goes a long way. So I didn't give up on it. I stuck with it. And uh, later on, I got into comic books writing for G.I. Joe. And um, Random House said to me, what, what do you want to do? What's your next project? Hoping it would be, obviously, World War Z Part II, <laughs> the battle for more money. <laughs> and I said, no, no, I've got this great idea. I want to do uh, a story about a war that most Americans haven't heard of in comic book format starring black people. And I heard something on the phone when I was on the phone. I said, what was that? They said, oh, we're sorry, one of us dropped a pin. Um, And you could hear them talking. They're probably saying, oh, my God, what do we do? Just give it to him, make him happy. And I think they probably thought like they were throwing me a bone, sort of like, how they let Scorsese do Kundun, hoping that he would then make Casino. I think that's what they were hoping for. Give give him this, and then eventually, uh, he'll give us World War Z Part Two. So, uh, they let me do it. I paired with this amazing artist, Kanan White, and I went back to do even more research, and finally, six, I think it's about six years later, here it is, the Harlem Hellfighters. And this is this is my story. So I'm really done with hearing myself talk. I would love to hear questions from you if you got them. So this is going to be the first to overcome social anxiety disorder. <laughs> yes? How did
1: you partner with Kingdom
0: Light and How did your process start, for mm. It was through Avatar Comics, who I'd already worked with. Now, Random House published this, but it was the book was actually made by Avatar. And I should say about Avatar... Avatar is essentially this guy, William Christensen. And he's this lovely uh, Peter Griffin looking guy in the Midwest who owns his own company. And I always say he's the last shoemaker in a world of shoe factories, which is why I love him. Because the buck stops with him. So he sent me a big stack of artist drawings and said, pick one. And Kanan did two things which were really important. Number one, his attention to detail is really important. Because if you're doing a comic book story Uh, that takes place in the modern world, we all know what the modern world looks like, so we can let our imagination go. We don't need to be taught anything. But if you're doing a period piece, you have to educate as much with the pictures as you do with the words. So you better get it right. So Kanan could do that. Also, Kanan was doing a war comic called Uber from World War II. And not everybody can draw a war. I mean, I've seen many a war comic where somebody's holding the gun wrong or, or they don't know how to draw a tank or whatever. So Kanan knew his stuff. And I said, this is the guy I want. As far as process goes, um, we never met. We hadn't met until six months ago. We sort of talked through email. I don't there was a movie um, probably before you were born called Spinal Tap where Harry Shearer says he says you know David and Nigel are kind of like fire and ice and my job is to be sort of the lukewarm water in between. Well that's William Christensen because he knows writers are crazy and artists are crazy and you cannot put them together. Uh, So William is the guy who who sort of edits the emails in between Uh, and he put us He was constantly putting us together. I would write the script, send it to Kanan, Kanan would send me back 10 pages, or I would write my notes, send them to William, and that's how we did this for years and years and years. And God bless Kanan, he could have kicked my ass because a couple times I found uh, factual details that needed to be redrawn. For example, I, uh, there's a big close-up of a guy with his, uh, his buttons on his uniform that say U.S. Well, I didn't know this, but they're National Guards units. Well, National Guards buttons don't say U.S. They say U.S. and then the initials of the state. So this was U.S.N.Y. And I was like, "Canon, I'm so sorry. You have to go back and redraw this." Uh, so that was our that was our process. Anyone else? Yeah.
1: Um, I know a lot of research.
0: Yeah, the the problem when you do a comic book, like I said before, is um, you're going to see everything. You know, if I wrote this as a prose novel, it wouldn't matter what the furniture looks like in a room. If it's not important to a story, you know, when you write a prose book, you only put what's important to you. You know, like when George R.R. Martin, if he's writing a scene, he's thinking, okay, all I care about in this scene is Death and incest. <laughs> we don't need to describe someone's shoes. But when you do the TV show, you're going to see those shoes. So you better make sure they're not Crocs. <laughs> so... With this, I had to make sure, because we're seeing everything, I had to make sure it was all accurate and correct. So I like to say that my research was four feet high. Because literally, if you stack up all the books I read, it was four feet high. Well, one solid foot of that is nothing but picture books that I would send to Canaan. I was Kanan White's research assistant. Because he, he had a tough enough job to draw, so I had to provide him with information. Uniforms, buttons, weapons, fashion, architecture, just everything. And Kanan had an even harder job because a lot of the guys in this are real people who there are photographs of. So he couldn't just draw, say, James Reese Europe or Henry Johnson, how he thought he'd like to look. Uh, he had to actually go from photographs. And as a guy who can't draw a stick figure, I can't imagine anything harder so yeah you have to put in a lot of homework that no one will ever see just so you don't fail not that you succeed just so you don't fail uh, because it's got to be accurate at least that's how I that's how I view it uh, anybody else yeah when you first started were there any No, no, I actually, they had all died, I think the last lived in like the 1970s. I was really lucky though because I saw, I found a documentary called Men of Bronze. I encourage everybody to to go check it out. And it's, I think, two of the last living Hellfighters. So I watched that. Uh, at first, I used to watch it just for the information, and then later, when I was studying dialogue, because my dialogue sucks. I'm not, I'm. you know, every writer's good at something and not good at something, and I'm really not good at dialogue. I think it's probably because I'm an only child. Uh, you know, I had no one to talk to, so it was me with my GI Joes. Um, but in order to study the dialogue of how these young men spoke, someone uh, at the Schomburg Center for African American Studies told me, uh, if you if you haven't seen Men of Bronze, check it out because that's a great lesson in dialogue. So I watched it every day. There was a guy, Melville T. Miller. He was a, a hell fighter. And he sort of talked like Archie Bunker.
1: That's how he talked. He said, we were, yeah, we were in a war.
0: You know, believe you me, he'd say things like that. So I, I watched him every day when I was doing my final polish on the dialogue. And that was really important. And this is the thing, I, I studied history in college. And every history, every good history teacher will tell you, go for primary source material. You know, historians are great, but they, always, they can't help themselves. They always put their spin. Uh, depending on the decade that they live in. You know, they they can't help themselves. So I was lucky, the book I ordered from Amazon was called From Harlem to the Rhine by Arthur Little, who had served in the Hellfighters. So it came out in the 20s. So it was an authentically published book of that time, written by a Hellfighter, wasn't rewritten in PC-90 language. So those sort of primary sources were so important. And also I found the CD tr- version of James Reese Europe's original music, sung by Noble Sissel, who had served with Europe. So it was, it, this wasn't like a modern jazz version. This was the actual music with the scratchiness and all the phonographs. So to listen to that music, to see them, to hear them talk, to read those words, that was so important. And then going to the Schomburg Center, I found actual posters from that time And this was really important because in this book, in in my book, the Battle of Henry Johnson, Kanan draws two pictures, which I think he deserves an Eisner for. Because after the Battle of Henry Johnson, you see him sort of bloody and sweaty, surrounded by dead Germans, how it really would have looked. And then the next page, you see the rendition in the newspapers. And that's a copy from the original picture that made its rounds around the country. So you see the real Henry Johnson and the one where he kind of looks like a gorilla. Which is exactly what he says in my book. He goes, I look like a gorilla. But that's, it was a white artist, and that's what America saw. You know, which, which could have been seen any, which way? If you were a hellfighter, you were like, yes, heroic man, but if you were a racist from, you know, the South, which back then would have been called someone from the South, <laughs> that's a terrifying picture. Because you see this big, hulking, sort of simianesque creature with a bloody knife. And you can see how that would have been used for propaganda purposes. So I wanted to juxtapose that with how it probably really looked. Uh, What was also great was I got to read uh, authentic newspaper articles of the time, which I put in here. There was this horrific uh, racist bigot writer named Irvin S. Cobb Uh, at the time, once again, probably not considered a racist, probably considered a journalist. (laughs) Uh, But he had such a change of heart after reading about the exploits of Henry Johnson that he said from this day forth, the letters N-I-G-G-E-R will simply be another way of spelling American, which he could have got himself shot for that. So I thought those exact, and I put those exact words in there, which by the way, I got some flack for from Random House. They were like, we can't, we're not sure if we can promote this section of the book. Because what happens when you do a book, they always send out a few, like a little booklet of one scene. And I said, let's do the Henry Johnson battle. That's great. And they said, well, we can't. You have the N-word in there. I said, I didn't say it. <laughs> I said, Irvin S. Cobb said it in 1918. That's not me. That's history. You know, you can't, you can't edit the past to appease the present because the present's always changing. So, Anyway, that is that was really important to have authentic words, authentic images. Anyone else? Yes, sir. You know, when I was reading your book, there's two names I came, Alan Seger, the poet. Yes. And Pippen, um, Horace Pippin. So Horace, these are real people. Real people. Wow. Real people. And yeah. I'm well, no, neither actually Horace Pippin did. Horace Pippin, if you know anything about African American art, which I did not. He was one of the most prominent African American artists of the early twentieth century. He, when he was a young man, he had served with the Hellfighters. So I bought a book of his artwork called "I Tell My Heart" by Horace Pippin, and his early works are pictures from the trenches. Uh, so I thought I'd give him a shout out because I mean the fact that you had Henry Johnson, and you had James Reese Europe, and you had Horace Pippin, and they were all in here. Now, the poems by Alan Seeger, I put that in there because Alan Seeger was an American who'd fought with the French and been killed. This was before America had even joined the war. And he has a wonderful poem called I Have a Rendezvous with Death. And not only is it, uh, I think, a beautiful description of the futility of this war, it's public domain. (laughs) So I could actually put it in here. Uh, And I thought it served really well. Uh, but you know, as far as research goes, you know there 's little tiny details that will be lost on ninety percent of your readers, but the readers that you most want to get it will also be the ones that will kick your ass if you don 't get it right <laughs> You know, so like I didn't know much about African-American poetry from the turn of the last century, but literally I have two of my characters talking where this guy's reading Alan Seeger and his friend's like, who are you reading? He goes, oh, it's a book of poems. He's like, oh, and I was like, crap, who would he be reading? So I called a friend of mine. She's she's not African-American. She's black. She's English from Jamaica. So she's from Jamaica, lived in England, and is a professor on at a university in Long Island. So I was like... Give me some African American poets at the turn of the century. And she's like, well, what about Paul Dunbar? And I'm like, okay, I, I and I bought his books. I'm reading oh yes. So my character says, Oh, what are you reading? Like Shakespeare or Paul Dunbar? <laughs> but it's those teeny tiny details which which matter, because they also matter to me. You know, I know how I get when I read something that it's not accurate. You know, I was reading uh, I was re- I was reading a historical fiction of a guy, and he was talking about in World War II about the KGB. And I was like, wait a minute. They weren't called the KGB back then. They were called the NKVD. And you know, this is something you have to know about me. I'm very OCD, and I'm, I'm very much like that. You know, I'm that guy who won't let his friends watch a movie, because I'm like, that would never happen. <laughs> so I have to appease me first, and I have to make sure those little tiny details, uh, you get them right. Uh, anyone else? Yes, in the back. In your process as you're, as you're working on your book, do you keep it close to the desk or do you have uh, like one or two trusted people to uh, look at your first draft, your second draft? That's a really good question and I think that's really important for all writers. <clears throat> I think it is important to show your work to other people but you better be damn sure who you're showing it to. Right. Because, uh, Many well meaning people who don't know you and don't know what you're going for will try to help you by rewriting it. You know, and and that happens all the time. Where somebody would read this, and this didn't happen, but as an example, somebody would say, Oh, no, I really like what you're going for. But, you know, like, what if they're not black? You know, people are always trying to rewrite. So you if you are going to show it to someone, it has to be someone who knows where you're trying to go and gives you the right directions, you know, as opposed to saying, well, why would you want to go there? Uh, so, like, I showed it to my girlfriend, who eventually became my wife, and she's been with me on this project for literally... 16 years, 15, 16 years, and has seen every draft, every different version. Um, For example, the ending, I struggled over the ending for a lot because I wasn't sure how to end it. Because the truth is, they came home in triumph, but they also came home to a tremendous racial backlash. They came home to what was called the Red Summer of 1919, which was some of the worst racial violence this country's ever seen. So, yeah, they had their moment in the sun, but it didn't change the world overnight. And when I showed it to my wife, she was like, we went back and forth. First it was all dark, uh, then it was all happy, and then she kept saying, you know, I think I think it, it should be uplifting because they did accomplish so much and you, and you can't say it was all for nothing, but at the same time, you can't deny that the fight wasn't over. When I heard that, I was like, that's a really good way of saying it, so that's how I had the ending, which was... Yes, we came home in triumph, but our war did not end with the war to end all wars. Anyone else?
1: You said you originally started it as a uh, screenplay. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, here's the the irony of of this project. Okay, Uh, you finally turn your back on Hollywood. You finally say, enough with Hollywood. To hell with them. I'm going to do this as a comic book. It will live. No more screenplay. So, literally, and then, you know, Six years getting this thing done with all my books i 'm about to put the back oh, the phone rang it 's will Smith. he wants you to turn into a movie okay <laughs> so now literally i 'm right back where I started dusting off like final draft uh, and and trying to put this back in screenplay format and so which is weird because. Even though a comic book is very similar, there's a lot of things. Like I was literally just saying to my wife the other day that one of the things I'm doing now is trying to take out as much exposition. Because when you do a comic book, there's just blank pages of pictures, and that's a perfect opportunity to put in narration, extra facts. But when you do a movie, there's it, the pictures are moving, and there's sound effects, and there's a lot going on, and you don't want to get in the way of that with too much narration. So right now that's my big challenge is putting it back in and trying to figure like, oh, what do I need to what do I need to cut? Cause when I was doing as a comic book, I thought, oh, I can put so much more in there. I don't I mean, you draw one guy, you draw a hundred guys. Who cares? I can make the battles as big as I want. <laughs> uh, I mean, now the thing is, I don't know what's going to happen with the movie. I don't know if it's going to get made. It may end up starring Brad Pitt. <laughs> and a bunch of Chinese guys because the Chinese film market is very lucrative you can make a lot of money in China so I mean did you guys see the, did you guys see the movie Red alright now I saw the poster and then I saw the poster for Red 2 a couple years later and it was essentially the same poster except there was a Chinese guy in there and I, I was like I guarantee you even though I have no idea who that is he's probably like one of the biggest stars in China and I was right because they do that now. They, they, the, the Transformers are not going to be fighting on the Great Wall for no reason. There's a reason they do that. So the great thing about a comic book is you don't have to worry about any of that. Uh, you can do what you want. And this is actually something that was told to me. And this was hard. I was taking an extension course at UCLA when I was writing the script. And the reason I took the course was it was taught by a guy who created a TV show that I'd loved when I was a kid, and he was African American. So for an African American guy in the 80s to be his own show creator, I mean even that. But you know what he said to me? He said, "Don't he said make your characters young white men." He said, "I'm not going to tell you not to do that." He said, "But if you want your scripts to sell, you increase the chances, you open more doors if they're young and white, because there simply are more white male stars in Hollywood than anything else. So if they don't get one guy, they can get another guy. It it just increases your odds of casting. So that's pure economics. In this, I don't have to do that. You know, I can do as much as I want whenever I want it. So that's the big difference, is the artistic freedom is just, it's off the charts, which is great. Anyone else? All right. I mean, I think, we've, I think we've talked about everything that we need to talk about. This is, this is, and oh, one more thing, which is really important, is I always intended this to be an introduction to the story of the Harlem Hellfighters, which is why in the back, I, I put my bibliography in there. And I didn't just do that to brag. It wasn't just like, look at all the books I read. Ha ha. I'm so scholarly. No, I did that because if you are interested in this subject matter, you know where to look. So I've got a list of all the books that are on the Harlem, and I've got it organized, like, here are books on the Harlem Hellfighters. Here's books on, like, African Americans in every war. Here's books on World War One because let's face it, we don't know a lot about World War I in this country. Uh, and so some documentaries I've seen, and also James Reese Europe's music, which I think everyone should listen to, and it's really awesome. So everyone, uh, thank you for coming out, and Harlem Hellfighters.